Amen. If you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 78 as we consider this text, Psalm 72 that is, we consider this psalm in light of this particular Lord's Day. Keith, did you ever find your notes on Psalm 24? It's that very reason why I bring my notes to the pulpit. (laughs) And I number them in case if I ever drop them and they should somehow be put back in the wrong order. Who knows what y'all will be hearing then. Uh, Psalm 72, as we turn to this tremendous psalm, I trust that the Lord will open it up to us on this day that we think about King Jesus. When Paul was going through probably the greatest challenge in the ministry that he had in the time after the big revival in Ephesus, then he also met the strongest challenge spiritually of those of Ephesus. I think that's why he wrote back to Ephesus and he says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. But you might remember there that in that city was where the revival happened to such a degree that even the sorcerers were getting, the Lord was saving them, they were burning their books and people were walking down the street and they would see the apostle Paul and they would just, you know, just try to touch his garment. The Lord was doing a tremendous work there, but where the Lord does a tremendous work, the enemy also loves to disturb. Uh, When we consider what Christ is and what he has come to do, Paul then had this complete uh, paradigm shift. Here he was a Pharisee, and here he was uh, a Jew of Jews. And he had to think through everything quite differently while not throwing anything in the way of the Old Testament. He had to look at it interpreting through Uh, a a crucified Messiah and a resurrected Messiah. And when he went to the darkest part of his life of ministry, he then took the Psalms and then he would sing and pray the Psalms interpreted in light of Jesus Christ of the one of which the Psalms speak. And I think that's a good thing for us to consider as well. The Shema prayer in Deuteronomy 6 that we open up every uh, Lord's Day in the Matins, he would then pray and take that and, and shift that into the light of the crucified and risen Savior. The Lord our God is one. And so as we see everything now interpreted in light of Christ, may Psalm 72 be a brilliant psalm for us both this morning and for the rest of our lives. Let's turn our attention there now to Christ, the ideal king. It's important to realize as we read that the psalm title is important. So I'm going to read the psalm title. I believe that was also inspired by the Spirit. Psalm 72, a psalm of Solomon. Give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. He will judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. The mountains will bring peace to the people and the little hills by righteousness. He will bring justice to the poor of the people. He will save the children of the needy and will break in pieces the oppressor. They shall fear you as long as the sun and the moon endure throughout all generations. He shall come down like rain upon the grass before mowing, like showers that water the earth. In his days the righteous shall flourish in abundance of peace 
until the moon is no more. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. Those who dwell in the wilderness will bow before him, and his enemies will lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and of the isles will bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba will offer gifts. Yes, all the kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. For he will deliver the needy when he cries, the poor also, and him who has no helper. He will spare the poor and needy and will save the souls of the needy. He will redeem their life from oppression and violence, and precious shall be their blood in his sight. And he shall live, and the gold of Sheba will be given to him. Prayer also will be made for him continually, and daily he shall be praised. There will be an abundance of grain in the earth, on the top of mountains. Its fruit shall wave like Lebanon, and those of the city shall flourish like grass of the earth. His name shall endure forever. His name shall continue as long as the sun, and men shall be blessed in him. All nations shall call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who only does wondrous things. And blessed be his glorious name forever. And let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for this tremendous psalm and ask now that your spirit would fall fresh upon us to give us an understanding spiritually of the fulfillment in Christ and what he has promised and what he has given and how he executes his office of king and priest to us even this morning. As we celebrate and commemorate his, his kingly office and his mediation for us poor and needy. We are thankful that we have a strong king that can overcome all of our enemies and triumph over all of the earth. How important it is for us to remember that in the light of all that's going on in the world around us. Grant that we would not lose sight of who truly is king over all. And may our trust be in him fully today. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Palm Sunday, as we think about this Holy Week beginning, is the time when Jesus rode into Jerusalem as the King. It was the culmination of his earthly ministry and setting up his kingdom here upon the earth. That kingdom public ministry began at his baptism, when he was baptized, which was an anointing and then the empowering of the Spirit of God that God the Father had promised to the Son that he would give him the Spirit without measure to accomplish that for which the Father sent him. The anointing of the Spirit of God to anoint him as this priest and as king, prophet, priest, and king, being the only qualified mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. His calling then was tested as the Spirit drove him into the wilderness where he was tempted by Satan for 40 days and 40 nights. He then came preaching the gospel of the kingdom, calling people to repent of their sins and believe the good news of the kingdom. 
The presence of God's kingdom among men was evidenced here in Christ. He showed the power of God in healing the sick and causing the lame to walk and opening up the ears for the deaf to hear, causing the blind to see and opening up all of our hearts in this way of his people to hear the gospel and to understand the parables. He was showing his authority over all of the natural creation, not just the souls of men, not over just their bodies, but he is king over all. And he displayed his kingly power when he calmed the storm and, he, and the wind and the, the waves obeyed him as he walks upon the water, defying all of those natural ways that we think because he is king over it all. He is creation's creator. He shows his authority not over the invisible or the visible world that we know it and that we can see it, but he shows his authority over the invisible realm, which we do not see, where he then drove out the demons, where he had authority over them, where they would even petition the Lord himself of something that they would desire He came to show us a different way of thinking of which we had been born into, faulted by our, the original sin that we inherited from our head Adam. And when he fell, we all fell in him. And so that original thinking was distorted. The original righteousness was marred. The original holiness was no more. And the way that we thought about life and the way that we come into this world thinking about life is completely different than the Lord Jesus himself is showing the way it is to be. That it was originally intended. He shows us a different way to think, a different way to behave, a different way to live life as Creatures created in the image of God. To the extent that in the Sermon on the Mount, he goes to this where he says, and he's describing his kingdom people when he says, but I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. That is something that you and I cannot do. Naturally, it is not something that you and I can do in our strength. It requires the supernatural work of the Spirit and the saving grace of Christ Jesus to change us and to reshape us into the image of God and to heal that which was broken in us. But by the power of God, that is what our great King does. He showed us how he can do it, and he showed us the way that we should do it, and he's empowered us by the Spirit so that we will, and that is what is expected of us. It's a completely different way of thinking. He shows us a different manner in which to consider God's kingdom. It is a spiritual kingdom, not in contrast with physicality, but it is a spiritual kingdom in contrast to the carnal kingdoms of this world. The kingdom, he said, is in you. It is reshaping us into the image of God. It is remolding us back into our original intention. 
showing us what it means to be priests and kings, to be cultivators of God's creation, to protect His sanctuary and His holiness, to keep and to till the garden. And while Christ ministered, executing and still executes the offices of prophet, priest, and king, his final hour was rapidly approaching where he, as the great high priest, must offer the atoning sacrifice for sin, which himself was the Lamb of God. And where he must, as king, defeat all the powers of darkness and sin, what he had to accomplish in our behalf and for us, he had to accomplish in all three offices, collectively together in his single person. And he is the only one fit that could do so. When Christ entered Jerusalem as Israel's ideal king, The question is, why do we need Christ as our king? As the shorter catechism would simply answer that, Christ executeth the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in retaining, restraining, and conquering all of his and our enemies. That's what we pray for in the second petition of the Lord's Prayer when we pray, Thy kingdom come. Israel needed an ideal king who would lead his people in peace and show them a different kind of kingdom from the world, a different way to reign uh, than the earthly kings. And throughout their history, These earthly kings of Israel and Judah apostatized and abandoned their true calling and God chastened them. And there was always this sense of lacking. And particularly after they were exiled into Babylon and they no longer had a king. And they no longer would have a king until Jesus comes on the scene for centuries. But what, I, what Israel needed was, was an ideal king, a, a king who would be faithful to God's covenant, who would never apostatize, who would not have any sin, who would reign in such a shepherding way that he would carry out and accomplish the will of God for his people. Christ is this ideal king. He is in no uncertain terms. That which he is now exhibiting as he rides in to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And as he rides in, he is declaring that he is the king. His disciples had known it. They had already given their profession. You are Christ, the son of the living God, Peter would say. Others who believed in him and knew him would call him the son of David and would submit themselves to him But he now wanted to show not just secretly or privately or in a limited way. He wanted to show the entire world, believing and unbelieving alike, including Pilate that he would soon face, that he is king. That he is God's Messiah, the son of the living God, the king of Israel and the king over all. And that's what he was declaring when he rode in on the donkey on this day. 
there is a legend. I don't know if it's true, and I can't verify it. Perhaps it is or not, but it's interesting to think that uh, the legend goes as Jesus was riding in the town on the one highway that leads into Jerusalem, that on the other side of town coming into Jerusalem was Pilate riding on his horse. And what we see is two worlds about to clash so that when Jesus at his trial, when Pilate faces him, are you then a king? You say it. And he showed him that Pilate could not do what he was about to do if the authority had not been given to him by a higher authority. What is truth, Pilate says, as he's staring right at it? A clash of worldviews. And so we have not only the Jewish world that was betraying his, their Messiah, but the Roman world that represents the rest of the world also siding with the Jews against the one and only king of them all. And so that's what he was declaring. The psalm that is written before us was titled a psalm written by Solomon. When Solomon was reigning... And this was one of the few psalms that he wrote. Israel's kingdom in the Old Testament was at its zenith. David had defeated the enemies, and yet it would be Solomon that would be given to, in the peacetime, build the temple. And this was the time in which tremendous wealth and fame and wisdom was granted, and that the the Zion worship of Israel reached its zenith. And when we now worship in the New Testament, it is the pattern over Zion worship at its zenith that we look back to. This psalm pictures a true messianic king that would later come. Solomon failed. But this psalm points forward to the ideal king. We know this king personally. His name is Jesus. And as we consider this psalm, it helps us to understand the nature of God's kingdom here on earth. It helps us to understand how it is different from the world and carnal kingdoms. And it gives us the anticipation for its final fulfillment. So let's consider Psalm 72 after that very long introduction. And we will yield to our King Jesus this day as we consider this psalm in the light of who he is. I want to consider seven points from this psalm about our ideal king. The first point is in verses 1 through 4. The ideal king will bring justice to his people and he will judge righteously. That's what verses 1 through 4 sum up. When he brings justice to the earth, he will judge his people in righteousness and bring justice to those who are poor and oppressed. The ideal king will relieve the oppression of the poor. Our God cares for the poor. He loves those who are oppressed and he will come to their aid. And we should be an extension of that into this world. But that takes some biblical clarity. Who are the poor and who are the oppressed? Now certainly we can see the obvious outward poverty of some people and even the oppression of people in this world they abound all around we get that we can understand as we uh, see that in our own environment but David 
speaks in many of his songs of which he wrote about God relieving the poor and the oppressed. And David, as the king who was then writing it, identified himself along with the poor and the oppressed while he was yet king. We wouldn't consider a king as wealthy and powerful as David as poor and oppressed. But the poor and oppressed are not necessarily so because of authorities over them, as Marxists would point out. But those who are truly poor are poor of spirit. They have a contrite heart. They mourn over sin and they are meek in their character. This is the first three beatitudes that Christ gave us of his kingdom character of those in the kingdom. David was a man after God's own heart. He was one who knew what it was like to suffer for righteousness sake. Those who are oppressed are those who are the subjects of people of, of hateful hearts. And King David had much to identify with this because he was a righteous king. And because he was righteous, he was committed to following God's righteous ways. Saul chased him all around the wilderness in order to kill him. And David twice had opportunity to take Saul's life and would not do it because he said, I will not raise my hand against God's anointed. Because David's commitment to the Lord's righteous ways, he suffered much oppression from it. The ideal king will judge David's case and relieve him and bless him. The way we have to think about this is all kind of upside down. The Lord himself was the suffering servant who would sit on David's throne and it would be through his service that he would endure oppression and he himself would be poor. And Isaiah 53 fills this out to show us the ideal king was one who suffers. And that's why the Beatitudes would, would then identify with biblical clarity who are the poor and who are the oppressed that God will relieve. When he says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, they will be comforted. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for such is the kingdom of heaven. The ideal king will come to aid those who are poor in spirit, those who are oppressed because of righteousness, and for those who mourn for their sin and the sins of the world. And we need an ideal king to bring justice to this world. In the light of what we've seen this past week, we can all say amen to that. But secondly, the ideal king will establish a new realm. A new kingdom that will permeate the earth with God's glory. And that kingdom will be a spiritual kingdom. It will be a new creation. We see this in verses 5 through 8. Notice the creational themes they're given here. They shall fear you as long as the sun and moon endure throughout all generations. He shall come down like rain upon the grass before the mowing, like showers that water the earth. In his days the righteous shall flourish in the abundance of peace until the moon is no more. These creational themes pointing out the seasons and the light that measure these matters by we see in verses 5 through 7 the dimension of time 
There's a new dimension of time in which Christ came to establish. Time is a creational dimension. And notice the time of the ideal kingdom. As long as the sun and the moon exist. As we note here creational aspects, we're taken back to Genesis 1. To the original intentions. And that's part of the nature of God's kingdom. It is inseparable from God's creation. What he started here, he will finish here. And it will be through the ideal king. We see also in verse 8 the dimension of space. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This is an expansion of even what Solomon knew, the dimension now of space. Again, time and space are creational dimensions taking us back to the garden, but now extending it in gracious measure to the uttermost ends of the world. The entirety of the earth. His kingdom now will include not just a spot of land in a city, not just an area of a geography in the Middle East, but the entirety of the world. His kingdom will reign. Very similar back to the dominion mandate that God gave us in Genesis 1, that we are to take dominion and multiply and and then take his glory throughout all of the earth. Now God gets that all back on track, even in the midst of the fallen world. So he says in Habakkuk 2.14, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters do cover the sea. That's what our king is doing. This was God's original intention that he brought it to Adam. This was our intention in which we were created in the image of God. When Adam named the animals, he was executing this kingly office. He was to grow the garden itself, to fill the earth with the glory of the knowledge of God. But where he failed, Jesus succeeds. And now his kingdom is growing in this world but in a different kind of time and dimension of space alongside the old world in which it coexists. By the power of his creative word, God through Jesus is creating a new world here, a new heavens and a new earth. Jesus himself being the first fruits of this in his own resurrection, where he even says to us, you are a new creature, a new creation in Christ Jesus. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Third, in order to do this, we see the ideal king defeating the ultimate enemy of the world. And the ultimate enemy of the world is also God's ultimate enemy, and it is our ultimate enemy. We see this in verse 9. Those who dwell in the wilderness will bow before him, and his enemies will lick the dust. We have two references here, one to the wilderness in the first part of the verse. The wilderness, when we think about the wilderness, it's it's a destitute place. It's the wilderness which is where the dark forces of the enemy, Satan himself, confronted Jesus and tempted him. 
It is in the wilderness that the people wandered. It was not the intent for them to be there 40 years in terms of uh, humanly speaking, but it was for them to inherit the promised land. But God tested them in the wilderness specifically. The wilderness is a place that is barren. It's kind of the opposite of the picture of what we would might think of the garden with its life and its beauty and its flourishing. The wilderness, a destitute place of food and water, the essentials of life. Secondly, we see the reference even, I believe, to the old serpent Satan himself in verse 9b when it talks about licking up the dust. And that's exactly what God did with the serpent when he cursed him. He cursed him so that he would lick the dust. And that's why we have this figure now that so many people have this animosity toward in a rightful way. A serpent. The ideal king will have complete victory and will rule over all of the dark forces. He will strike the blow against that old serpent. The strongest enemies that we have are the enemies that we do not see. And that's why the nature of King Jesus' kingdom had to be addressed and it would have to to penetrate the spiritual dimension of the heavenlies in order to defeat the old enemy and to bring this creation into the heavenly realm. That's something that no earthly king could do. Jesus, the ideal king, would defeat the world's greatest spiritual enemy operating in this heavenly realm. Fourth, the ideal king will attract homage from the ends of the earth From all the nations and all the peoples and the princes and the kings, they would bring their homage to him. Verses 10 through 11, the kings of Tarshish and of the isles will bring their presence, the kings of Sheba. We might get the picture here. It was the queen of Sheba that had heard of Solomon's great wisdom and of his great wealth to the extent that she made a pilgrimage to come visit Solomon to see What great things that God has done for him. News traveled out into the uttermost part of the world so that kings wanted to come see. Well, this is the picture of this ideal king. If we consider the nature of the original creation before the fall, when there was no enmity, when there was no men warring with each other, when there was no battles to engage in that sense, we can more easily see a particular aspect and true nature of God's kingdom. The kingdom is ultimately not about fighting, though fighting is going to be necessary spiritually so, but that's not what it's all about. While there was a component in this fallen world to get creation back on track, the nature of the kingdom is about spreading the wisdom of God and the beauty of God and the goodness of God throughout the world so that the ends of the world will be attracted to God. The very beauty of His creation would be restored and they would bring their glory to God. And as the waters do cover the sea, the knowledge of the glory of God would be made known Through his ideal king. See the king. And the kingdom. Are attractive. 
And it has this effect of drawing people to it. The kingdom is about building. It's about cultivating. It's about creating. It's about extending the glory and the beauty of God throughout all of his creation. And we see that pictured in these verses. That these kings from all around would then bring their homage to the one who had wisdom, wealth, and beauty. In verse 11, we see an identity here with the Abrahamic covenant where all the nations will come and serve the king. And part of the covenant with Abraham that God established that all the nations through him will be blessed. We see in verses 12 through 14, the fifth component, the ideal king will redeem the poor and the needy from oppression and violence. No other king was able to do this. God often used enemies to bring oppression and violence upon his people because of their unfaithfulness to him. We need to think about that today. This is oftentimes how God chastens his people with other people. Kings were often the culprit leading God's people into the way of idolatry. And because the kings themselves were often the problem, there was no earthly king that was able to do what finally the ideal king could. In fact, Solomon, who wrote this psalm, apostatized so tremendously that the kingdom was rent in two after him, showing the great need for an ideal king. And as glorious as Solomon's king was, it was not ideal. Jesus had to fulfill this role. As the ideal king. He had to redeem his people. Out from under their burdens and their sin. And the oppression of the great enemies that we have. He did this in an act of self-sacrifice. Not lording it over us as the Gentiles do. But serving us as God's servant. It's a completely upside down way of thinking. Six, the ideal king was also priestly, verse 15. And he shall live, and the gold of Sheba will be given to him. Prayer will also be made for him continually, and daily he shall be praised. Now, as we understand the relationship between the the priestly realm of God's sanctuary and the kingly realm of God's dominion, these two are inseparably related. I think verse 15, hints at the priestly aspect of this king. When you think about a priest, a priest is one who is chosen out from among God's people to represent the people before God. And in that sense, we as priests represent all of creation And we sum up the praises of all of creation and we then bring that into the sanctuary and we put voice to it, to God, as his image bearers. As this great king now has all of the praises and all of the homage and offerings being given unto him, the king then sums it all up, takes it into the sanctuary and then puts voice to the praise of the glory of God over it all. And the ideal king, representing all of creation as its head and chief, representing all of his people, 
in all of the realms, in all of the kingdoms before God in the sanctuary, now also is the priest who is fit to take these things and put them to praise in the inner sanctuary. So not only is he an ideal king, he's an ideal priest, and the two are coupled together in a focal point through him where all of creation now converges in his mediation before the God that created. That's why today we pray in Jesus' name. That is why we meet in his name. That is why we worship our God in his name. That is why we have access into the inner sanctuary only in his name. Our worship must be mediated through Jesus, our great high priest, and he is the only one through which our praise and worship is heard. We need an ideal king who is also an ideal priest. And we have both of these in King Jesus. Now, seventh and lastly, the ideal king will bring the blessings of God's covenant to Abraham into full fruition. We see that in verses 16 and 17. His name shall, uh, 16, uh, there will be an abundance of grain on the earth and the top of the mountains. Its fruit shall wave like Lebanon and those of the city shall flourish like the grass of the earth. His name shall endure forever. His name shall continue as long as the sun and men shall be blessed in him. All nations shall call him blessed. The earth will be blessed and it will bring forth its produce and its fruitfulness The nations will call him blessed and will be blessed because of him. The ideal king will bring the promises that God gave to Abraham into a universal fulfillment over all of the world and over all of time. In family worship, a past week or two, I was reading through with the family this time in which Satan took Jesus out into the wilderness to tempt him. And Luke's version is very interesting that caught my mind. In verses 5 and 6 of Luke 4, it says, Then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, this is when Jesus was in the wilderness being tempted, the devil showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. All the kingdoms that have ever been And ever will be in a moment of time and offered them to Jesus if Jesus would fall down and worship him. The ideal king would not need for Satan to give that to him. In fact, Satan goes on to say, these things have been given to me and are in my authority to give. Now, the ideal king would not need to bow to Satan. He would defeat Satan. He would crush the head of the old serpent. And he would gain all of these kingdoms for his own. And that's what King Jesus did. In the most unsuspecting way, upon the cross of Calvary, he gave the defeating blow of it all. How would a psalm like this end in... uh, Thinking about the ideal king, it could only end in doxological praise, verses 18 through 20. Blessed be Yahweh God, the God of Israel, who only does wondrous things. 
And blessed be His glorious name forever. And let the whole earth be filled with His glory. Amen and amen. The psalm ends where it could only possibly end. When someone's heart has been gripped with its truth. As Jesus rode into Jerusalem to the doxological praise of His people who shouted, Hosanna, the King of Israel. They didn't know the nature of His kingdom. They didn't know how wide it would become. They didn't know how transcendent beyond this earthly realm it would be. They didn't understand the dimensions of reality it addressed nor the manner in which the old serpent's head would be crushed under his bruised heel on the cross. They didn't understand that through that, not only would they have their king, but King Jesus would inherit all of the kingdoms of the earth forever. They didn't understand that a whole new world was dawning upon them, And how the old world had to end. They didn't understand this new day, this new time, this new space of the new heavens and the new earth in the way that uh, was to be expected here. They just were saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. And because they did not understand, only days later they were yelling, crucify him, crucify him. What Jesus did on the cross is He took all of the ugliness of this world, all of the sins of His people, the curse of Adam, the guilt of this world, and through His death, He buried all of that in this old world. And in His resurrection, He would sprout something brand new. This day we commemorate our great ideal King, the only one who could fulfill its office And the one who still executes that office for us and for our sake. He is the one who brought God's kingdom down to the earth. And he is reigning today. Let's give him praise. Our Father, we thank you for our great king. We thank you for revealing these truths to us by your spirit. We are thankful for saving us and bringing us under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Subduing our flesh triumphing over our sin, reigning over the dark forces that rage against us, and and giving us the power over death itself where it does not have any sting. We are thankful for eternal life. We are thankful for being our great high priest and ideal king. We ask that you would encourage us in this fallen world today as the news each day brings us the atrocities of what our carnal flesh produces, we are thankful that you have not left us to such an end, but has transcended us into a beautiful kingdom which will have no end. May we be faithful in sharing this as your kings and priests who co-reign together with you, seated in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus, May we be faithful with the gospel and all of the life and culture that it produces to show forth the beauty and the truth and the goodness of our great king so that his attractiveness will be made known to all of the elect. Bring into your church those who are to be saved and use us as instruments of righteousness.
to disciple the nations we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.